From 2002 to 2005, Raf Korkowski, originally from Poland, represented the Canadian national team at the 2003 World University Championships in Italy, the 2003 World Championships in Vancouver, the Pan American Championships in 2004 and 2005, the 2004 Titan Games in the USA, and he was an alternate for the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens, Greece. Raf was the Manitoba Weightlifting Association Male Lifter of the Year from 1997 through to 2005. He holds multiple Manitoba provincial records, Canada Games records, and titles as Western Canadian and National Champion. Raf, a multi-sport athlete, was also a member of the University of Manitoba Bison men's volleyball team from 1998 to 2002, winning two national junior championships and two CIS national championships. With the Rio Olympic Games in full swing, we've seen some amazing athletic performances. Still, I can't ignore the dark cloud hovering over the games that seemed to grow even darker and darker in the aftermath of the Beijing and London games. The independent WADA report made it pretty clear that there was a state-sponsored cover-up in Russia. It wasn't just a cover-up. The sports ministry ran this doping program. There's clearly lifters in this country using steroids. The entire Russian weightlifting team switching gears now has been banned from the Rio Olympics. The International Weightlifting Federation said some of the Russian weightlifters had been named in a report by the World Anti-Doping Agency, which exposed evidence of alleged state-backed doping. The race to keep the Olympics clean will see hundreds of samples across all sports from Beijing and London retested. When I was competing in 2013 in the World Juniors, um, some of the medalists with me, I got a medal in there and seeing them here and the progress they've made and you think well how does that happen and you just gotta work on yourself and I think when I go home at the end of the day I know that I did that through hard work and I never cheated. A world power in weightlifting with 36 Olympic medals but the Bulgarian national team is now struggling under the weight of too many doping scandals. They've all been banned. Last week, European weightlifting voted for doping control to be taken away from national federations and handed to the world anti-doping agency, WADA. The story goes, they take a bunch of kids, 10, 12, 13 years old, give them a bunch of steroids. They start training as hard as they can. Top guys from that class move to the next class. Again, top guys from that class move to the next class. I mean, it's just, you know, they weed out, they find, right. they find an Ilya Illin. You know, at 13 years old, they start giving them drugs. The mentality is win. Raf is the head coach of my local weightlifting club here in Nanaimo, the Hercules Weightlifting Club, which has been functioning as the largest weightlifting club on the island since 2015. This past week, I spoke to Raf Korkowski about some of the recent developments regarding Olympic weightlifting in Rio. The following is episode 19 of Ballistic Strength Radio. Uh, I'm joined by Raf Korkowski. Did I pronounce that right? You did. Thank you. More or less? More or less. Yeah. You what, did better ha- than most. Okay. What do most say? Uh, variations of uh, Raphael and Riff and Raf and Korowski. And well, I only use the short form, but it's, exactly, it's, when you exactly. look at the full, it looks like Raphael. It does. Yeah. And being a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan, that's probably what I would have 
gone yeah. with. <laughs> oh yeah, I grew up hearing all those variations. Uh, yeah, Raphael the Ninja Turtle was, I think, through four grades my nickname. So it was, uh, then I became the painter, and then I became Raffy the children's musician. So Raffy heard it all, heard it all. But uh, no, Raff is good. He did well. Okay, perfect, easy to remember. Um, and so you've been weightlifting yourself for quite some time now. Since for how long now? Yeah, I guess it's uh, off and on will be 29 years. Um, I took a bit of break in my in my lifting career after I finished my higher level of competition to uh, just, again, focus family, career, all that kind of stuff. But I'm back here with the club now and training and coaching and, and uh, competing again. But uh, almost 30 years, yeah. Eight mm-hmm. years old was when I started. So. And how far did you take your uh, weightlifting career? Um, or how high? Yeah, well, when... Uh, when I started at eight years old, obviously there was a big uh, development process there. Um, but uh, in my later teenage years, I started representing at uh, Junior Canadian Championships, the Canada Games. Um, and then in uh, 2001, uh, I really ramped up my training and was part of the Canadian national team. Um, traveled to Pan American Championships, um, World Championships, World University Championships. And I guess the peak of my career would have been around the 2004 um, Athens Olympics qualifying year where um, I came second behind our uh, Olympian that year, Akko Sandor, and was an alternate for the Olympic Games. So that would probably be the peak of my, both my training and my competitive drive in the sport. Um, following the Athens qualifying period, I still continued to train for two, three years, but it was at a, at a reduced level. Again, I moved to Vancouver Island. So training conditions, coaching, environment, everything changed. and. Uh, the past years of training still kept up for for a while, but it was more casual at that point in time and different objectives and priorities. How did the coaching environment change? I mean, because you have uh, Olympic weightlifting that kind of runs in your blood. I mean, was was Merrick, your father, your coach, more or less? Yeah. So, I mean, ever since I started eight years old in Winnipeg, um, which is where we all grew up, we were training at the High Performance Center at the University of Manitoba. And I was there with the provincial team and with my dad as my coach for... Uh, I guess the first 20 years of my life, um, almost 20 years of my life. And uh, in 2004, when I moved to Vancouver Island, here I was uh, moving from a high performance training environment with provincial team, with athletes and with my coaches to building a gym in my garage and kind of training by myself with my wife. Uh, So under our own kind of uh, limited uh, supervision and partnership uh, in that aspect, we were both busy again with careers and that kind of thing. So um, yeah, I think the biggest change is the priority of, of weightlifting in my life. It's, you know, you're, you're now working a nine to five job as opposed to waking up and thinking, training, eating, sleeping, training, eating, sleeping. So, um, and then having the team and the, and the coach to hold you accountable just makes it that much easier to slack off and, uh, and kind of cruise through. So, um, you know, that Olympic year was a tough training uh, period for for a couple of years and uh, it was time for a rest as well so it was almost everything kind of happened natural progression into semi-retirement in the sport and uh, yeah it was it was good so uh, a lot of people myself included don't really know what exactly it takes to be a national level competitor um, so can you give us a breakdown of like the normal day of RAF when you're like at your peak level from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed yeah, well, I mean, at my peak, I was a student, so um, I wasn't a very good student because, again, weightlifting was a priority for me. So, uh, you know, those last two years when I was at the peak of my training, again, I would wake up um, and most of the time we had uh, two-a-day sessions programmed um, three days a week. 
Uh, there were some periods where we we had three day sessions twice a week, um, and then otherwise we would train once once per day. So it was a full week training schedule. I think we put in twenty to twenty five hours of training. Um, not all of it was high intensity or high volume work. There was a lot of supplementary, a lot of flexibility, speed work in there as well to balance and give the body the rest it needs. But uh, but yeah, it was basically waking up and just uh, preparing for for training and uh, coming home and studying on the bus kind of thing on the way from uh from training to to um to your meal because you skipped class and that kind of thing so uh it, it was just it was very intense it was a very um lifting filled routine day to day um but at that point in time that was uh that was the drive so um you know looking back it's it was great but it, it, it's not something that's very sustainable for for me and, and everything that I want to do in my life. It wasn't sustainable long term. Yeah, there's so a specific purpose behind it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You could tell you were close, and you knew that you know it would take a a big commitment like that in specifically the sport and that huge priority focus in order to get to that next level. Because it's it's you know it takes a lot of work and 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 to get results really fast in the sport of weightlifting. But once you get those great results to go to the next level is, you know, it's twice as hard and you had to put, put in twice the effort and commitment and focus. So um, that was what those two years represented. And I took a step back in my studies and all that kind of stuff, my friends and all that uh, second, uh, second place behind uh, focusing on training and, uh, and the results came, but, um, but at that point in time, you know, met my wife and uh, started to move to Vancouver Island and just started kind of, changing um the priorities and uh that was great so when uh, spectators are watching the olympic games um like right now uh and we see athletes go up there and some of them perform well maybe some of them perform not so well and uh when we see those athletes who maybe even just bomb out over three for you know their snatch or their clean and jerk um do you think it's lost on some spectators uh, exactly the, the the difficulty in the training and the lifestyle that it takes to get to that point. And do you think that maybe some of these athletes get a bit of a hard time when they, you know, they head up to the platform there on the Olympic stage and maybe not do as well as expected by their country? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every athlete is working uh, extremely hard to even get to the Olympics. When they get there, um, the expectations are raised because uh, they want to deliver. They want to place as high as possible and there is no higher level of competition so you can't hold back a lot of these athletes um, are affected by you know the weight loss they have to cut um, they train at higher body weight so they're used to be feeling stronger feeling uh, better nutritioned and then you know once they start their their tapering period the weight loss has a huge impact especially when you're dealing with uh, you know two to five kilos at that level it's it's crazy how much uh, impact it has um, but they're also, yeah, they're, the, you know, they're bombing out, but a lot of times they're opening at weights that are either at their personal best or higher than their personal best, just so they can keep up with the competition that's there, that's at their level. Um, you know, for a lot of these countries that, that are going in, um, they've had a lot of six or sorry, athletes that are going in, they've had a lot of success at the international stage already. So for them to finish seventh at the Olympics doesn't mean that much. They, they'd rather go all for broke and try to, f- fight for a medal uh, as opposed to um, hit a routine lift that they know they can hit that'll place them lower in the standings that really won't give them anything the, their primary objectives are a little different so combination of a lot of those things you know some people fail because of one reason um, there's a lot of injuries people are training very hard in preparation for the olympics sport like weightlifting isn't very forgiving if uh, if your body's fatigued and you're trying to load it up even more um but yeah i think a lot of that is also just chasing uh 
numbers that are that are um, higher than personal bests and to keep up with the competition. So you'll see a lot of more missed miss attempts at this level of competition mm-hmm. than you would at a at a smaller, lower, lower level meet. Okay, um, tell us about Merrick's involvement in the sport and what impact it's had on you. Well, you know, I, I respected um, Merrick, my dad. Uh, from a very young age because again I grew up in the gym I I was like three four year old kid sitting on the mat in the corner watching him and his team um, continue to train hard day after day after day kind of thing that's where I that's where I grew up that was my babysitting daycare kind of um, hang out with the team so um, not only that though was once he finished competing as an athlete himself um, we moved to Canada f- because he got uh, the Canadian national women's coaching job with with the team here so that's why we immigrated over to Winnipeg. And ever since that day, he's been active in his personal development and um, and education as a coach and passing that on to everybody else uh, around, you know. So, you know, for me, having somebody who's that uh, dialed in to weightlifting um, has a background in working with a whole bunch of different national federations back in Europe, uh, gaining knowledge about the sport and, and then again delivering it to his own athletes through, through programming um monitoring and, and and you know just adjusting customized uh gave me a huge respect that he actually pays attention so obviously i'm biased because he's my dad but uh, the way he works with athletes and athletes and uh and treats his athletes um i wouldn't want any other coach i mean we have a great relationship to this day because of weightlifting um I've learned a ton from him and it's kind of given me the motivation to now be involved in the coaching role as well and, and get this uh, Nanaimo club up and running. Um, so it's, it's great. Um, he's always, always been supportive and I always tell a story like when I was, um, when I was younger, the, the age from like eight to 15 was extremely painful because I felt like I was on a leash, super held back because he preached the development of foundation, the technique, the balance, coordination, all the all the basic skills that every kid should learn before they start to specialize in a sport. And um, I was always like capable of more and stronger, like, oh, let me try more, let me try more. But he said, no, no, no. So we took small incremental steps in that development. But looking back now, like throughout my entire weightlifting career, I've never experienced failure because I was always set up to compete within my means and all that all those repetitions where you're working within your comfort level naturally develop um into yeah just confidence and and positive outlook and so to this day i mean i think i've competed in 120 competitions or something never bombed um so it's uh it's it's cool i mean it's a great relationship and a lot of different factors both mental physical uh training are definitely um thanks to him so and how old are you now rap uh, 36. <laughs> That's not even terribly, that terribly old. That's no, not bad. I got another couple of years for sure. I can, I can push. So yeah. Yeah. You probably still feel like you're in your twenties. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, where mentally. The, that's where the mindset yeah, is mentally. At. Yeah. Um, but that's something I've definitely taken away from you being, uh, going to the Olympic weightlifting practices is, uh, you like to reiterate the importance of, you know, speed and agility and all these things that are not directly related to just how much weight you can lift over your head 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, weightlifting, Olympic weightlifting is a multi-skill sport. And uh, as you work with new athletes, it's important to teach them that all those elements are equally important. Um, you know, you look at other things like, you know, your general fitness, um, weight training or your power lifting. Um, there's different simplified movements that don't necessarily have uh, still very technical, but they don't have that speed elements. They don't have that fast twitch fiber um, presence. So in a sport like weightlifting, um, because you're moving a lot of weight um, at high speeds and putting your body into various positions that it may not be used to, it's definitely important to uh, stress flexibility and development, uh, balance coordination. That's why we work through uh, with our athletes through development phases to ensure that they are building that foundation no matter what age they are, um, whether they're a kid or a master's lifter coming in, uh, it's all it's all the same. You work with lower volumes to get muscle memory, get the body comfortable so that when you put higher loads and higher uh, demands on it, it's safe. It's uh, it's prepared for that uh, those movements at, at those high speeds. So, so when you have um, athletes come to you, is, is uh, one of the more important factors there lift their lifting age or their natural age um, that you take into consideration more like how long they've been lifting for or how old or young they are in a true sense yeah i mean it, it's it's very case by case every athlete is different uh there are some athletes that have been lifting uh for a very long time uh, but may have developed really bad habits or there's some athletes, you know, for, for coaches, uh, me personally, and I know my dad's of the same opinion is uh, we, we really like working with raw athletes and the younger, the better, because um, if they have the commitment and the motivation to continue training, then uh, they can be taught properly. Um, you know, the foundations, all those things that I explained earlier with, with that, that I went through um, can be instilled at a young age. Uh, with older athletes, you get sometimes you get a lot of resistance um, with training and uh, and habits always come into play. So you got to do a lot of corrective uh, training. Um, so yeah, I would say it's very case by case because every every body is different. I guess everybody's different. Everyone comes from different experiences. Um, so so yeah, you know the relative age or the actual age. It's uh, there's no real rhyme or reason. You just got to assess the athlete as to where they're at, uh, both in their sporting athletic backgrounds and their uh, strength and flexibility and all that, and and be able to um, react with a program that will allow them to succeed and move towards what this sport requires. Are there any specific issues um, related to uh, putting two different athletes on the same program um, that you could, uh, just in a hypothetical situation even? Yeah, it's uh, well, same thing. It's, it's a case by case assessment. I mean, we try to um, we do have a team program, but we ensure that athletes are ready to be on that team program. Our team program is still very generalized and the athletes that are now reaching higher levels. Uh, and there are a few of them at our club. They do get modifications of that team program that give them a bit more challenging um, training programs and experiences and focuses uh, based on their weaknesses because everybody's got a weakness that they can work on in, in their overall game. Um, but yeah, there, there definitely could be disadvantages if someone's la um, lacking, like if you're talking about two people lifting the same weight potentially, but uh, technically they're not quite the same. One does it through uh, speed and flexibility, one does it through a lot more strength, then those are different athletes uh, in a sense and they will require a lot of supplementary or modifications to certain elements of the training program in order to, uh, to again, allow them to, to move forward with a balance of all those multi-skills required um, and not just the one element. Do you have any examples of your own experiences coaching athletes who progress at different rates? So athletes that pick it up real quick and athletes that don't pick it up as quick, but perhaps maybe still end up at 
kind of their desired um, end goal? Yeah, I mean, right now the club is uh, the perfect example of it. Um, we started in Nanaimo officially as a club, um, well, what is it now, a year and a half ago. And we came in with um, into a gym, uh, our initial group of athletes, they were all new, under one year of training in Olympic weightlifting, most of them under one year of training in any kind of organized sport. And uh, they all had goals. They all improved um, in the course of this one and a half years, but they all did it at different rates and for different reasons. Again, then it goes back to, um, you know, someone like uh, Quinlan in our club, for example, uh, strong, uh, fast, um, but had some issues with uh, flexibility, some upper body strength. Um, someone like Aaron, who um, was also working on personal fitness, so he dropped a lot of weight, so that had an impact on his development as an athlete. So maybe the result number-wise didn't progress as much, but the relative result did. Um, he developed a lot of speed. Um, you have people like Heather, our master's lifter, who's, uh, you know, came in saying that she can't pick anything up off the ground because her doctor told her not to. It's bad for her back. Now she's squatting. She's got the best range of motion in her life as you know said by her and um so so yeah you, you see all those uh those successes in different ways um but i think again the approach is case by case you got to assess the athlete and see what is a what's their objective so you know someone that wants to come in casually three days a week because all they want to do is do a couple of club competitions provincials that's a different focus and it's a different attention they need than somebody who wants to do for personal fitness or someone who's ultimate goal is to make the Olympics. Uh, there's different ways you work with that athlete and different uh, periodic training plans you develop to have uh, goals for a particular um, period in the calendar year, a particular weightlifting season, or even longer, you know, three, five year plans. Um, and the best thing to do as a coach is once you assess the athlete, sit down with them and have that discussion and say, you know, here's where I see you, here's your potential and, and where, where do you want to go and here's how we can get there. Um, so yeah, the ones that commit to those plans, um, it's very rewarding to see that. And, uh, and, but the path isn't always the same because it can depends on the person and, and the different variables in their life and their backgrounds that they have to deal with as a coach. Can you tell us more about Heather? Maybe what impresses you most about her progress and maybe if there's any other related cases that you've uh, dealt with? Uh, well, well, Heather and, and all of our other Masters lifters, you know, Madeline, age 62, you got Ed and Brenda, a couple, they're over 80 years old. I think the best thing about them as a success is the fact that they break the stereotype that weight training and weightlifting isn't for, you know, everybody. It's it's for that 20 to 30 strong gym-based person. I think it's more like weightlifting because, again, it's not just based on strength. It's all range of motion. Uh and flexibility, speed, all those different elements, balance, coordination, uh, it's great for anybody. And you can take anybody at whatever level um, of, of ability into a gym and start wherever they're at. You know, right now, my seven-year-old daughter's training with a, with a wooden broomstick because that's where she's at. Someone like Heather, when she came in, she was doing the same, wooden broomstick, because I didn't trust to give her weight yet and I didn't know enough about her. Um, but as you, as a coach, as you learn more, you can start to implement those programs and, um, and then you can, yeah, you can work with anybody really to uh, to see that progress and change. And uh, I think it's it's great. So yeah. Uh, well, a big part of uh, with Heather's case as well is, um, but it goes, it's pretty universal. Is uh, yeah, you're gonna get her started with a dowel or a broomstick because maybe you don't know much about her, but. Um, as well, she also has to build the confidence to get under the weight as Absolutely. well, because yeah. that's going to be a huge factor as well. Yeah. Even with 
you know, some developed athletes, if they're unsure about the weight they're about to pick up, the chances of them actually making that lift are, you know, going to be diminished. No, absolutely. And that kind of ties into the story I told about me being held back for the seven first years of my training. It's uh, because you're always wanting to, to come out of a training session with confidence. Uh, there's no sense ending a training session with five misses and then going home. It's like, oh, you're kicking yourself. You're like, oh, I should have made that. This sucks. You know, it's a negative feeling. So every time you come out of a training session, you always be like, yeah, it was good. You might be tired. It might not be perfect, but you're still successful in, in what you accomplished that training session. And for new lifters, I think that is a primary objective as opposed to how much weight is on the bar. You want them to come out of it uh, healthy, uh, confident and ready for the next training session. Um, and for someone who's got, again, um, confidence and, and trust issues because of maybe some physical restrictions, you know, for Heather, that is a result of, you know, having a surgically fused spine, which has prevented a lot of, you know, ha- has put up a barriers in, in her personal life for a lot of physical actions up until, you know, she's started to build that trust and confidence, developed it. And now it's, you know, she hasn't felt better physically. She's jumping, she's running, she's lifting, she's squatting. It's, uh, you know, it's, she's come a long way. So, um, and I think it's possible with anybody, but yeah, it's, it's both mental and physical. Absolutely. I got the impression from you earlier that, um, you know, as you were coming out of the, the peak of your athletic career, um, coaching wasn't really on your radar. Would that be accurate? Yeah. So when I moved here in 2004, um, I started Hercules Dynamic Training. It was just a small little sole proprietorship trade name that I registered. And uh, as I continued my own training, um, I I always knew that I wanted a second presence for the Hercules Weightlifting Club in BC. Um, Obviously at that point in time, my dad was still in Winnipeg with my former team and with all the athletes there um, running the Hercules Weightlifting Club in Winnipeg. Um, So as I was training here and still competing, I started working with sports groups. That was one of my initial supplementary income things uh, early on when I moved over. I worked with the VIU um, men's volleyball and, um, and basketball teams, uh, Nanaimo Track and Field, um, Vancouver Canucks for a couple of years actually, went over to do some um, summer training camps with them for weightlifting. Uh, so it was kind of uh, still active, but um, but not full swing as a coach per se. Uh, there wasn't a formal club. Um, at that point in time, I was still an athlete at heart, and uh, I, I love coaching. I love helping people. When I was in Winnipeg with my dad, I was the assistant coach there, got all my certifications. I was part of the team, and having been an experienced lifter, people are always looking up and asking questions, and, and, and I'm more than happy to help, but it wasn't that official coach title at that point in time. You were um, doing more, I guess you could call consulting at that point. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I was just being a teammate, I would okay. say. Yeah, I was I was helping out. Uh, I was sharing my experience. So I, I know that's what coaches do. Um, but uh, at that point in time, my focus was still to be competitive athlete. Um, when I moved over here, uh, that turned more into consulting, working on a contract project basis with these sports groups to, again, pass my experience in Olympic weightlifting and educate them in, in the ways that they could strength train uh, for their sports. Um, and then fast forward, uh, I guess, six years in 2011, 12, um, when my parents were getting ready to move out here, I started formalizing the club. We actually started getting some lifters. Uh, we registered in BC as a weightlifting club. And then um, in 2014, eventually, we partnered up with CrossFit to run our program out of their facility. And now we're a fully functional BC registered club with um, 
my dad retired here now. We are both coaches, um, but I'm still an athlete uh, at heart, so I'm still competing and uh, coaching kind of in conjunction with one another. So. And your most recent competition was uh, 2016 Nationals? Uh, 2016 Nationals, yeah, three months ago. Yeah, yeah so. I watched a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. good. Yeah, can you maybe describe that uh, that event? Uh, yeah, or what you took away I from mean, it? For, for me personally, it was um, it, it was the first push for a competition I've made since probably 2006 or so. So, you know, when we started the club again in, in 2014 with Nanaimo CrossFit here um, at their location, um, I started training and then it's almost like that environment started happening again. Here I am as part of a team. My coach is here again. So it's like, oh my God, I'm back in 2004 now. I, I, it's like, I want to lift. I want to do well and get that drive back. So. Well, that And is that um, specific event where the next you know, Olympians are going to be chosen? basically or or at least it's going to be taken yeah. into consideration as to who gets chosen yeah national championships every year are uh, definitely a key event um where they are one of the few competitions that count towards national team criteria both for your national carding and for your national team selection um there's a handful of other ones as well um throughout the year but uh, but that's probably the, the key one and that's the peak of everybody's uh lifting season is the national championships in canada um because after the may long weekend which is when they occur um the international season starts that's where you get the pan am championships pan am games olympic games as they are this year happening so um so yeah so you know for me preparing in 2014 uh right away on the radar was 2016 nationals 2015 i should say to back up those nationals were held in toronto and i didn't quite feel ready to be there yet i qualified and i could have gone but it was far and i wasn't uh, physically ready to to go and compete yet i wanted to get that year in training to push a little bit and and it was a great year where every competition that i did uh, i improved my result still not to the level that it was in 2004 but for me at this age it was rewarding to start to creep up and uh, break a few bc records a few canadian masters records on the way it was you know it's cool um so this year's nationals was an experience um to again come out and uh and again improve on all the results of that year's training and uh and i think they deliver on my goals um i'm always a strong lifter in the snatch exercise so i did well there my clean and jerk was kind of uh, um if I, I wish i had another attempt because i just you know meant mental lapse and missed a couple uh missed a couple attempts there but um what's the what's uh, the most difficult part about the clean and jerk for you what creates the most inconsistencies um these days uh it's it's the jerk um i mean i've through volleyball uh, my, my volleyball career which is my other career that uh, i did play through university um there's a few like lingering rotator cuff issues uh, i've got a broken collarbone so there's a few elements that come into play uh, i've never used them as excuses per se but uh, they're definitely factors in having a consistent clean jerk uh, and even in training um, to to progress in the jerk uh, so throughout this last year i didn't miss a single clean in competition the cleans were all super easy uh, i was thinking about that earlier today it's like even with lighter weights you could miss a snatch yeah because of the speed involved and the uh the change in um 
the, well, the distance that the bar has to travel and the distance that you have to travel under the bar as compared to a clean per se, where you don't have to get the bar quite as high. Yeah. And it's, it just feels like a more contained lift. The clean, unless it's super heavy is, I don't want to say guaranteed, but yeah. there's more confidence there. I think there's less margin for error is, yeah. is the way to put it okay. really, because, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right in the snatch lift. You got a wide grip. You're doing one motion right to overhead and things like balance and, and this, the path of the bar play a bigger role because you have to do the full range of motion in one motion. Um, in the clean, it's a bit more forgiving because yeah, you're only getting it to your shoulders. And, uh, if it's a bit in front, you can actually adjust from that and still save it, uh, with heavier weight even because again, the, the range of motion that the bar moves through the first part of the clean is, is a lot shorter. So, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, for me, you know, I'm tall, I have long arms, the shoulders, all that kind of stuff together has just, um, yeah, it's just screwed up uh, and screwed with my jerk so it's uh i'm still working on it. i'm still training trying to develop that upper body and back uh, strength and legs obviously but uh it's a work in progress which is funny because back when i was at my peak in 2004 my jerks were automatic like if i clean the bar i would jerk it every single time so it's kind of backwards now now i can clean everything but uh, the jerk's kind of like 50 50 with my top top weights so uh so yeah we'll see we'll keep working on it and uh as long as we can. Um, so do you have a full-time job right now? Would you call it full-time? Yeah, I would call it more than full-time. <laughs> more than full-time. Yeah. You're, you're, well, you run your own business, right? Yep. Okay. So um, you, you run your own business. It's more than full-time. You have a family. Um, a lot of people make an excuse of having not enough time in a day, though we all have 24 hours. Yep. Right? That, you know, we put, put, oh. put wherever we want. Um, how, how do you find the time or what do you say to people who, who can't find the time to do some of the things that, for example, you do like being able to at, at 36 go to nationals, you know, compete at the national level? Yeah. You know, for, for me and my personal situation, and I can't speak for everybody else. Um, but for me, it's, it's because I have a great support system. Um, I'm lucky that my whole family is here. Um, uh, my wife loves weightlifting. Um, my daughter loves weightlifting. Um, my dad is the coach, so we kind of work as a unit. Um, when it comes to our training sessions, my dad, my wife, and I, and now these days with my daughter getting older and getting ready to and excited to lift, we all work, we all go together. Um, and uh, I have a younger two-year-old, and my mom stays back with her. So, you know, it gives it frees me up to be able to do that um, because it's important to me. Uh, I think that um, for people, uh, if something's important to them, um, they will make it a priority and they'll shuffle their schedule however they need to, to make make things happen. Um, so yeah, you know, I do work. Uh, I'm out of the house early. Um, so during the course of the week, we don't spend as much time with the kids as we'd like to, but that's why we focus that into the weekends. So, you know, at my age now, uh, I'm not training seven days a week. I'm reserving those couple days for family time and uh, for those things that get neglected during the week on the weekends. Uh, and the weekend is pretty, or and the week is pretty routine with uh, your regular nine to five job and then uh, evening training sessions and um, and fitting in uh, whatever family time be- you can between uh, between the hours that those things happen. So. Um, but yeah, you know, none of it would be possible if I didn't have, again, my parents here to help with the kids. Um, my wife that loves training with me. So even though I'm going training, she's there too. And we're spending time together almost every time. So it's, uh, it works out. So I got lucky that way, but, uh, I could, could imagine it's challenging for people that don't have that set up. So, 
Yeah, I I think that's definitely one of the biggest variables, or one of the most important variables, is having that support system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we hear it time and again in a lot of different disciplines, whether it's Olympic weightlifting, um, you know, across athletics, or even bodybuilding and your nutrition. Yep. You know, having a good support system for that. So, um, I think you make a great point. And there's planes going over. <laughs> Damn you. Um, so let's let's come back around to, and we can use nationals as an example here. Uh, maybe you can break down the um, actual uh, how a weightlifting meet is kind of set up. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, t- to back up before weightlifting meet usually happens, the way we work with our athletes is um, a week before competition, we always have a tapering week. Um, we want the body to be rested in that uh, in that last week. There isn't strength development or strength building going on. The, the primary focus is to, to be quick, to be uh, rested. So before that, we have our higher intensity sessions where we're working towards um, more or less our starting attempts. It's usually a week out or so, or 90% plus. Um, and then we go into competition, again, being confident um, from our training. Uh, we kind of know what our goals and objectives are for what we want to open at and, and reach as a snatch goal, clean jerk goal. Um, so we take that into a competition and uh, knowing those numbers again dictates as to where you're going to enter into a competition. Um, in a weightlifting competition, it, uh, it the way it works is you start at a certain weight in the bar, whatever the lowest athlete is asking for. Um, and the bar increases throughout the course of the competition. Athletes enter once the bar reaches what they're asking weight is. So, for example, if I was to go to a competition, the first thing I would do is weigh in. The weigh-in happens two hours before a session starts. So, usually in provincial-level meets, there's various sessions throughout the day. For the heavier guys like me, I would lift close to the end of the day. So, I'd weigh in at 6 and compete at 8 o'clock, let's say. At 8 o'clock, me and the rest of the guys in my session would um, all be entered into the competition based on our starting attempts. So if I was the first one at 100 kilos, then I would go, I'd lift 100 kilos um, in the snatch, and then I'd have the choice to raise to my for my second attempt. So each athlete gets three attempts in the snatch and three attempts in the clean and jerk. Their best of the three attempts counts as their result in that exercise. So you want to come in to a competition um, and open up at a, at a lift where you're confident you'll be able to succeed. Um, second lift is usually something that you can then uh, lift close to your personal best. And for your third attempt, you reserve it for uh, the attempt that you're going to pursue a new personal best or a record or something. Exactly. But by that point in time, you hopefully have had two successful attempts. So things happen, you know, different technical slip-ups here and there where athletes miss their first, sometimes second attempts, changes the strategy a little bit. But the general thing, uh, the general concept is, yeah, you go in with three attempts and um, you want to match your personal best around your second attempt and, and exceed it at your third. So, so prior to your first attempt, um, what's the warm-up process leading up to that first attempt? Yeah, so again, using an example of like uh, 100 kilos, if 100 kilos is my opening weight, um, I would spend uh, the warm-up doing about seven or eight total sets of, of warm-up um, for that particular lift. So in the snatch, I'd grab the empty bar a couple times, um, you know, do four or five reps, stretch out a little bit, then you put on 40 kilos, do four reps. Uh, and then as you go up, um, so 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, let's say, are my seven sets, 
uh, pretty even increments. I'm warming up and I'm progressing equally and I'm reducing reps as I go up. So closer to, you know, my 80, 90 kilos or 80, 90% for every, any athlete you're doing, you know, two lifts at 80%, one lift at 90%, um, because then you're at your higher intensity. You don't want to burn too much energy. Um, and you want to imitate what you're going to be doing on the platform, which is a single rep. So you're uh, working with those percentages that way. So usually about 20 minutes or so of warm up, um, across seven to eight sets and uh, with reducing reps as the weight increases to okay. prepare you for your first competition attempt. So after your first attempt, yeah. depending on what other people are opening up at, yeah. you might only have two minutes before you follow yourself. That's true. In yeah. some cases. So what do you do or is there anything you can do in that two minutes to assist you in your next attempt? Um, yeah, not really. I mean, it's just basically catching your breath. Uh, the regular break for training uh, is about two minutes between your sets. So um, that in weightlifting is a natural break that they give you. So if you're following yourself in a lifting competition, which happens quite frequently, um, you get two full minutes. If you're head to head with somebody else that's close to the same weights, so you guys continue to alternate. Um, then you get one minute after the completion of their lift, uh, once the bar is loaded, um, to go out and complete your lift. In either case, you get about two minutes break, um, sometimes longer if there's multiple athletes asking for the same weight and you're waiting for like five or six attempts until you go, um, which becomes a technical and strategic thing at higher levels. Absolutely, there's, there's athletes waiting 10, 15 minutes sometimes if they make a jump that's too big. Um, or not too big, but just big in general, and athletes are either missing or taking smaller increments before them. Um, so that comes into play, but generally you get at least two minutes. Uh, and yeah, all you do in that case is you sit down, you rest, relax, and um, visualize your next lift. Is there anything you shouldn't do? Um, I mean, again, everyone's got different routines and yeah. things that, that psych them up. I personally like to just sit down, relax, uh, close my eyes and stay calm kind of thing. Uh, I'm not a big music or a rah-rah kind of uh, rev up guy. Uh, no but public there is enemy? A lot of, yeah, no. But there is, a, there is people that, you know, they spend their two minutes slapping their legs and getting the blood flowing and just getting that energy and getting psyched up. And, uh, you know, for me, I'm I'm different kind of athlete i'm focused controlled i just like to visualize and save my energy onto the competition platform that works for me um, if the breaks are any longer then um, i mean we do additional warm-up reps uh, if, if they're exceptionally long if, like, if you're waiting like a like i said like 10 minutes or so then you don't want to be waiting that long between your two attempts um, so we do a couple either squats or go up and do another warm-up attempt with uh, with a lower weight or something just to again stay warm but not but, uh, like 90 percent or above uh, it depends. It yeah, depends on the yeah, person. It depends. So absolutely. it really comes down to what your routine is. It, and, absolutely. And everyone's yeah. got, got whatever works for them. But the general idea is you want to stay warm and focused between your attempts. Uh, and your coach will manage that for you. Um, my coach does it exceptionally well. Um, and, uh, yeah, to ensure that you're ready when you when you go out. So, uh, yeah, it's really easy. As an athlete, it's easy at competition. The coach, you download all those uh, kind of time management things to it to the coach and you just sit down, relax, and get told what to do it's quite you're nice in robot actually. mode and you just exactly, do whatever he says exactly yeah, yeah. so lift. yeah i imagine mirik's got all the polish secrets to weightlifting but um one thing i want to touch on here is uh now lithuania where w my dad's side is from um has a long history with poland they used to be like the the 
they used to share the same borders and be the same state, essentially. Um, but with the exception of Zadrunas Savickas, uh, strongman, considered by many to be the greatest modern strongman ever, uh, Lithuania is not really known for its strength athletes. Um, between the last two games, Olympic Games, Lithuania has always sent one weightlifter, while Poland has sent five to Rio alone. Um, what is it about Poland that produces so many successful strength athletes in weightlifting and strongman? Uh, you know, for, for that, I would have to, uh, again, I'm totally guessing, but I would just say it has something to do with the national uh, sport organizations that uh, choose to, again, support different sports uh, initiatives. Um, in the same comparison as Canada invests in curling and, and you know, skating and hockey, uh, Poland has chosen to invest in volleyball and uh, weightlifting and soccer. Um, so you see those countries, uh, sports start to become more prominent. That's where they have historically gotten results. and that, That's what continues to support. Um, again, I don't know much about the Lithuanian national federations in sport, but, uh, you know, they probably have their national sport or something that they choose to support. Uh, maybe they don't. I, I don't know for, for sure, but that would be the distinct difference. I know uh, they, they want the basketball, the men's basketball team won a bronze in Barcelona. And I know that that was a really big thing at the time. Well, yeah. And I don't think Poland even has a basketball player. <laughs> so so th- there's a difference. You know, again, it's it's all what the country chooses to specialize in and support as, as their national program, because every government's only got so many dollars just to funnel into sports and and they set their infrastructure and funding models based on uh, mainly based on results and participation. So if Lithuanians love to play basketball, that's what's going to get supported, especially at the grassroots level. And that's what's going to have a stronger representation nationally. Um, same thing with Poland, same thing with Canada. So that's that's where I would attribute that difference. Mm-hmm. So. Um, what's the most impressive Olympic performance you've seen in weightlifting? Olympic performance? Unless know. you unless you have a uh, a more distinctive uh, non Olympic performance that you could mention, yeah, it's it's a tough question. You know, honestly, by being as involved in weightlifting and coaching and that as I have been, I I'm not too caught up in the international weightlifting scene. Uh, I mentioned that to you in another conversation. Like, I don't really know many of the athletes by name. I I tend to follow a lot of the Polish team because um, uh, because that's where I'm from. So, you know, going back, uh, there's definitely some things that I, that I was very impressed with. Uh, you know, when 19-year-old uh, Szymon Kolecki from Poland uh, clean and jerked 232.5 kilos for a world record, um, being 19 years old, I thought that was pretty amazing. I mean, it's been broken by uh, Ilya Alien. Um, he did it, I think, 234 in 94 class. Uh, again, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but... Uh, you know, again, for, for someone from your country to do that at the age of 19 was pretty unheard of. Um, I had, when I went to the University World Championships in Italy, um, I met uh, from Poland the, the team there and hung out with uh, um, Marcin Dolenga and his brother Robert. Uh, Marcin later uh, in 2003 or four, can't remember the year, but he broke the world record in the snatch in the 105, snatching 199 kilos. It's since been broken by uh, Aram now. He did 200, but still, you know, again, a countryman doing 199 kilos and the fact that you hung out with him is pretty cool. You know, it's, uh, he was chatting, asking about Canada, asking about sport here, kind of similar conversation where we're having and asking a lot of questions about how, how we lift here and 
and then to have uh, you know someone who becomes your friend have a success like that is pretty cool. So so those things are memorable memorable for me when I compete at the World Championships. Um, watching uh, Rizaza Day in Vancouver, um, lifting 265 or 260, 65 kilos, whatever his clean and jerk was, uh, huge amounts of weight. You know, I'm a 23-year-old kid at that point still, seeing these monsters in the sport lift huge weights, and I'm there live and competing with them. It's just pretty cool. So, um, but yeah, you know, this year's Olympics have already impressed. The Chinese have broken several world records. I think I posted the other day, like, woman in a 63 kilo class total 262 kilos like that's crazy that's a lot of weight um i don't think even the the 69 kilo women today lifted that much so you know relatively it's it's a lot of impressive performances um so far chinese lifters have broken a couple world records there was a crazy good battle today in the men's 77 kilo weight class where uh um, Chinese lifter snatched 177 kilograms for a new world record. Yeah, he broke his own record. Uh, broke his own record, yeah. Ended up getting caught uh, in the clean and jerk by uh, oh. the Kazakhstan... Uh, I haven't watched the clean and jerk segment yet. Yeah, by the Kazakhstan athlete who uh, had to lift a world record 214 kilogram uh, clean and jerk, but uh, he caught him and won by body weight. So, But still a medal for the Chinese. I don't think a yeah. uh, single Chinese lifter... Um, hasn't meddled yet that has been here so there's so many moments in a sport like weightlifting it seems like every time you watch an international or olympic event uh very similar to swimming it's like the world record gets broken it's uh yeah but uh but no i, I don't track individual performances i just more follow um the polish canadian teams and um and weightlifting as a general sport kind of any uh, underdog nations that you've noticed uh, this year so far kind of surprise you um underdog no i mean I really enjoy watching the Colombians have success because they're a Pan-American country right. and we yeah. have a lot of head-to-head uh, -head competition with them historically. So, you know, you see our Canadian lifters competing at Commonwealths and Pan-American championships with the Colombian team and uh, they, there's a lot of young new athletes. They've invested a lot of uh, in, into their Olympic program or into the weightlifting program. Um, so seeing those guys uh, now have a huge level of success at the Olympics is pretty cool. I, one guy got the gold medal, and there was uh, a couple that came very, very close. I think well, female got bronze, and uh, but it, it's just cool to see. Um, Again, I wouldn't call them an underdog because they're fairly strong, but um, but it's always nice when they creep close to the, the you know the Chinese and the Kazakhstan athletes. Uh, it's uh, it's pretty cool to see. I think um, <clears throat> it was two or three years ago. Uh, it may have been the San Francisco. Um, kettlebell competition that we went to uh and that we uh go to pretty much every year now um that uh there was a team from brazil that that uh lifted at that competition and it was really impressive part of what was really impressive about it is is that the team was mainly comprised of like junior lifters and they were quite good very talented and uh, just very disciplined you could tell yeah so um i think that uh, probably ties in with the lineage of weightlifters that you're talking about yeah, no, those the South American countries are doing quite well in Olympic lifting um, in recent years. And you can see that there's a, a new, uh, I guess, level of enthusiasm from the national sports bodies to, um, yeah, to basically get, get the results up. And, uh, you know, I always like to see great results, but seeing those same great results from young athletes is, is you know, a promising future for the sport. And who knows if, if they, they, stay, they stay healthy for eight years from now, they'll be the stars of the future Olympics. So. Uh, it's nice to be part of that uh, the process and seeing them now as to when they're just starting and then seeing them in four years' time when they're champions. So, yeah, it's cool. 
Okay, so in the introduction to his book, Drugs, Sport, and Politics, Robert Voy, former chief medical officer for the U.S. Olympic Committee, um, says the use of anabolic androgenic steroids and other PEDs has been commonplace in elite-level amateur and professional sports for years. The only thing that separated Ben Johnson, for example, from the other, other competitors is that he actually got caught. Um, this past July, it was announced that Russia's entire weightlifting team would be banned from competing in Rio for substance abuse stemming from results from London and Beijing. But we shouldn't really single out Russia as East German athletes have been accused of the same um, missteps in the 70s and 80s. There has been great incentive for athletes in general in socialist countries to use PEDs as becoming uh, top sporting uh, elites would typically grant them rewards ranging from automobiles, living arrangements, better living arrangements, and permission to travel outside the country. It's just kind of how it worked back then. Um, so one of the most recent developments, and I spoke about this um, with you earlier with regards to doping, and I'm, I'm sure it comes as a disappointment to you, is that weightlifter Thomas Zielinski um, has been thrown out of the Polish Olympic team in Rio after testing positive for a banned substance, according to Poland's news agency. Um, and he's the fifth Polish weightlifter to have tested positive since 2012. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, when it comes to doping, my knowledge of doping and, and systems and processes is very limited. Um, you know, the only thing, uh, obviously, it's disappointing when you hear someone from yeah. from your home nation get caught for, for doping is, uh, yeah, it's disappointing. Uh, I was looking forward to watching uh, watching him lift. Um, his, he's a strong, you know, great lifter. Um, but for whatever reason, him, uh, if these samples or whatever come back positive and, and anybody else for that matter, doesn't have to be Polish lifter. Um, like you said, there's, there's pressures, there's variables in these people's lives that, uh, I can't even begin to guess or assume, uh, how they influence these decisions to be made. Um, and for whatever reason they end up in this place and, uh, and, and they get caught as they should. Uh, I think, especially at the Olympics, um, you know, sport is is founded on fair play, and uh, for me, you know, doping—it's never been an issue or, or a topic at any one of my clubs because it's just so non-existent. I know nothing about it. Um, my athletes are developmental athletes. There's been no need for that discussion. Um, and I guess as a coach, if if it ever gets to the point where I'm working with an athlete that wants to make that step, I'm not going to be part of that decision process, and I will not, you know, support that end of it. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, right now with uh, with hearing the stories and all the different uh, scandals and stuff going on, it's uh, the big the big thing for me is that uh, there there's still is an appearance of inconsistency in doping processes. Uh, worldwide um, different countries have different systems in place other countries either have weak systems uh, they have nationally controlled systems or they have a total um, lockout for doping in general so yeah I, I think that's part of the whole Russia thing is that like Rusada <laughs> their doping organization that's basically their uh, their WADA affiliate I guess yep. you could call it something like, like that ha is under fire for corruption etc etc yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. And, and until there is a standardized, uh, I guess, governing body that can um, properly control everybody, which I think is impossible, you're always going to have these issues and they're going to come from every corner of the world, I think, uh, in, in different ways. So, yeah, it sucks to hear about it because it really hurts Olympic weightlifting as a sport. It hurts any sport that it happens to, I think, um, because that becomes the focus and not the extreme talent of 
these athletes, not only the ones getting caught, but the ones not getting caught, it mm -hmm. just it ruins the reputation of everybody that's participating um, because they're immediately affiliated. And I, I think that's the unfortunate yeah. thing about doping uh, as a whole. Um, I've always grown up, um, you know, being super anti-drug. I've never smoked a joint kind of thing or anything. Like Bullshit. Completely. completely. No, it's true. It's, uh, so if, well, you're you know, in BC I, now. Yeah, uh, I know. Marijuana is the most seized drug here. So. I know. I may have been exposed <laughs> to secondhand smoke once or twice, but uh, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's one of those things where, yeah, it, I'm totally naive when it comes to that world uh know nothing about it uh wouldn't know what to recommend or where to even start um so it's it, you know for me and my clubs i've never ever seen even a trace of, of a discussion about it rather than um uh, not even an issue kind of thing so um talking about these higher levels um they're really not applicable to to me so i haven't really taken an interest to be completely honest yeah um i one of the disappointing things i think is that even with the athletes who do get caught they're so talented yep. like they're they're so talented that's why they're there mm -hmm. and it's not like taking the banned substances is going to improve them technically and when we think about the development of elite athletes in particular which is what we're talking about um if we look at some of the things that uh, champion hammer thrower soviet hammer thrower anatoly bondarchuk has talked about is that strength will only get you so far and strength is great for improving a novice athlete but once you get to those elite levels mm -hmm. it's really the technical proficiency that is so important for mm -hmm. um making you a world-class champion yep. and you know as as fast and as strong as you know taking some peds might make you and you know those will have you know they may improve your technical proficiency indirectly it's really i don't think it's really going to be able to be that deal breaker with mm. you know what we're talking about yeah very possible i don't know i guess i i have no comparison to it you know unless you i guess experience what it feels like to be on a ped i have no idea what it even does i know that when i train i get tired i know that uh, to get strong i gotta get trained and get tired a lot uh, i know technically I, I have exercises that fix me there um, but it's really weird to not know what the potential is um, and I, I don't really care to find out but that's again that's a personal choice I haven't had any of these external factors to push me yeah. to making that decision I've yeah. heard some describe it as when they take uh, a certain and there's a, a lots of different drugs out there but uh, some have described it as they feel like literally invincible yeah. they just feel like they have so much strength or so much energy yeah. and part of that comes back to its ability to help your recovery but um, I can see how that could help then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Make it feel like Superman. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I belabored the, the point on the Russians and, uh, and uh, even the, the recently um, busted uh, Polish lifter, but um, it really would be wrong for us to point our fingers at other nations as Canadians because if we shift our focus closer to home, in the mid-1980s, four Canadian weightlifters were caught at the Montreal airport with over 20,000 capsules of anabolic steroids and 414 vials of testosterone. Um, as a matter of fact, steroids are seized six times more often than cocaine, nine times more often than hashish, and 22 times more often than heroin, according to the records from the Canada Border Services Agency. They're the second most commonly seized drug at the Canadian border behind marijuana. In Quebec, steroids are seized more often than any other drug. So, how do you think the recent announcements regarding the Russians and the Polish lifter affect the sport, the people involved, and its perception, or does it really make a difference considering what the statistics say about how uh, prevalent it actually is? 
Yeah, I, I think what it, what issues like or, or instances like this do is they just bring the problem to the surface. I think, you know, these things have been happening all along, like you're saying, happens in Canada too. Um, hopefully instances like that get surfaced and, uh, it, uh, well, I guess catalyze the change within the nation or the sporting organizations or the drug agencies to basically fix their reputation um, by controlling uh, instances and controlling um, testing and, and all that kind of stuff, I guess. Um, but yeah, you know, it, like you said, it, it's been happening everywhere. Um, it the, the media at big events like this tends to bring these news articles and, and, and these instances to the spotlight um, because there's a lot of competition and uh, they're competing just like the athletes are for the attention and this is the kind of stuff that gets it because it's, it's really easy to, to look at doping and scandals in sport and uh and drag makes it on, headlines drag man it on. makes headlines that's exactly it so um but yeah you know it, it, i feel it, like it, we're it, almost getting desensitized to the presence of drugs in olympic sport in particular but i think you look at like you, you look at when these things start to rise though there's a lot of people that come to the surface and and say well change it then like you know put something into place that makes us a non-issue because it continues to be an issue you know Canada here, Germany here, Russia here, you know, it continues to happen and there isn't a solution that will allow, you know, strong controls. And whether there is a solution that that's achievable, I don't know. Again, I'm I'm totally not in that world of, of politics and doping and all that. But um, it is unfortunate that me now, um, as a coach of a grassroots weightlifting club on Vancouver Island, has to be associated and affiliated with that bigger picture of what other people are doing just because I've chosen that sport. So yeah, it does suck for the sport. It sucks for the country because now I have two strikes against me. I'm Polish and I'm a weightlifter, right? So because a Polish weightlifter yeah. took a drug, I'm, you know, so it's uh, absolutely, you know, you never want to hear that. Um, but at the same time, you're responsible and you can control what you can control. And uh, hopefully the people um, that are reacting to these media headlines and uh, organizations and agencies can also react to the negative attention that it's bringing and find solutions uh, worldwide. So it, uh, it gets at least reduced and controlled a bit better in the future. So beyond that, what can you do? <laughs> I think one of the great ironies when uh, we're talking about this stuff and we take into consideration just the general population um, I mean, myself and Rachel have talked about this. We know clients who have, who have said, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take some HGH, yeah. right? I'm going to go to my doctor and ask for some HGH because I heard it does this or that. Um, and you see it all the time with, uh, you know, different marketing strategies with, with things designed to help you lose weight or, or help you feel better or, mm -hmm. or perform better in general. Um, and it's like all these little shortcuts. Yeah. And... Um, when it comes down to it, that's what the PEDs are. They're, they're, they're shortcuts. Mm -hmm. That's, that's how we perceive them. Um, and, uh, so when we take the general population's perception of all these other shortcuts into consideration, it's not like there's something that really separates us even ethically from an athlete that, or at least nothing that separates yeah. those people who take those shortcuts from an athlete who gets busted for, 
um, drugs at the Olympics, but um, but they're sometimes the first people who are you know shaking their fingers at them and saying shame on them, shame on them. Yeah, I guess for me the distinct difference is that as an athlete, especially as an athlete representing an amateur or professional sport at an international competition, is that you have agreed to abide by the rules. The general public isn't susceptible to the rules. They can do whatever they want because at the end of the day they're not being measured by anybody. They're not competing and they're not getting awarded for their results. They're doing it for whatever reason they're doing it. Some people want to look great in the mirror at the gym. They take whatever they take. Who's going to tell them otherwise? It's their choice. In a sport where you're representing a country, you're representing a team, um, you're in competing, um, there's a rule book and the rule book says you can't take drugs. So that's why those choices I think are criticized because you're breaking the rules. Um, you know, it's for me, it's, it's as black and white as that. So, you know, people sitting uh, fully jacked up on steroids because uh, because they will go to the gym or whatever and they saying, wow, that guy's an idiot because he took steroids. I, you know, I can see that it does happen, but it's also justified because no one's telling them they can't. But those people are told they can't and they're still doing it. So while at so. the same time. Texting and driving is still on the rise, and that's against the rules. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, but if people it's a funny get caught, thing to they get penalized. Yeah, yeah, they do. So. Yeah. So shame on them. It's, I guess that's why rules exist. So uh, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think if there wasn't, there'd be a lot more chaos. You know, some people are for the thing, uh, for, for, for just letting everyone dope however they want. Let's just make it a whatever. The best of the best. But then yeah. that changes. That's There's not sport anymore. That becomes now science. And uh yeah, it's if it, it becomes it's Rocky Three. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, one last question. Sure. Okay. Um, and we brushed on this a little bit earlier, but um, so uh, Voy from the Brook uh, Drug Sport and uh, Politics uh, also says there are probably gold medal winners and world record holders who would never have podiumed had it not been for PEDs. Maybe so. Um, further stating that athletes feel as though they have to. St- uh, they have to take the PEDs in order to stay even with everyone else. As a coach, describe how frustrating it is for you to hear this and to know that the athletes you coach may have to face this ugly side of athletics if they plan on performing at an elite level. Yeah, you know, never even giving it any thought. Um, I, I've never, ever even imagined one of my athletes being in that situation. But, uh, you know, I, again, I don't know these nations that could be put in the position that they have to take PEDs to keep up with powerhouses that are dominating the metal podium right now. Um, for me personally, uh, I think I touched on it before. Um, if one of my athletes became so successful that they're now 10th in the world and they want to be third and they're considering taking PEDs, they're not going to do it with me by their side. You know, for me, it's, I live by the principles of sport, uh, the values and everything and, and fair play and drug-free sports, one of them in Canada especially is, and, and it doesn't matter if it's in Canada for me, anywhere in the world, those values exist for a reason. They're the rule book. Um, so uh, that athlete would have to make that choice either behind my back or without me in their corner kind of thing. Um, so it, it would be difficult to lose an athlete, but it wouldn't be a difficult choice as to what I would do in that scenario. I stand by my principles. Um, and then, you know, as far as the rest of the world's concerned, um, again, you'd never know socialist countries, third world countries, what they're dealing with and what is pressuring them to get these results. For some people, even the risk of taking drugs and getting caught to reach a podium could be better than not reaching a podium at all. Uh, I don't know. I'm not there and I don't know what kind of discussions they have with their organizations. 
to make these decisions. But um, it, it's again, it's like, what do you do to control it, and and where where do you start really? And who's, nonstop who's testing all the time. Well, exactly. Okay. But who's gonna do it? Yeah. Exactly. I read an article today. I think there was a criticism from uh, I think it was a British British coach, and he was saying, you know. The, uh, the IOC is a billion dollar a year company, yet they invest $15 million into doping, which is yeah. the biggest it's, issue in the world in sport right now. You know, so, so maybe looking to start there, I don't know. Again, I, I read one article a year on this kind of stuff. And uh, other than that, I'm just like, whatever, kind of listen to the noise and not take part of it and just do my little club and uh, have fun. And that's it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I just want to thank you for um, joining me today on the My podcast. Pleasure. And uh, thanks for putting up with uh, these uglier questions. Difficult questions. The difficult yeah. questions, putting you on the spot a little bit. All right. So we got to run to weightlifter practice. Yeah, got to go train. Right on. Okay. I hear you.